Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have reached the internet's finest podcast for music from a chair company. Uh, before we get going into our trivia, we wanted to uh, say thank you to uh, Podchaser. Uh, they're a new uh, podcatcher, and they did a little write-up about the show, which was very sweet and very nice, uh, on their series called Chasing Pods. And we were Chasing Pods number five, and they asked us some questions about the vinyl movement and music, and really good questions, so we had a lot of fun answering those. Yeah, and we posted uh, links to their uh, blog and all that sort of stuff, so check it out if you haven't seen it. But now, um, hopefully your brains are warmed up, Steaming hot, piping, because we got some trivia for you. You know more than I know. You know more than I know. You know more than I know. I'm going to start things off today with a non audio trivia round. And as usual, I do not have any kind of clever name or anything for this, but. This is something something new that I'm going to try. I only have five questions. If it if it works and it seems entertaining, I'll do more of these because I think this would be fun for pe- for listeners as well. What I'd like from you is the name of an album I'm going to give you a clue to. Okay. But the album name has one word switched out. So uh, I'm going to go through the first one here just kind of as an example, and then we'll do four more just so you can get an idea of what's going on. Okay. So I'll give you the name of the band and then a clue to the album with the changed word. Okay, so here's number one. This is a Beatles album about a sad musical group of young bears. Um, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Cub Band? That's it. See? Okay. I think you got it. Hopefully everybody out there got it now, too. It's, It's... The less I say about it, the less confusing it is. Okay. (laughs) The second one is a Birds album about sour candy and bull riding. (laughs) I got it. Sweet Tart of the Rodeo. Very good. (laughs) Okay. The third one is a Tom Waits album about a communication device. (laughs) Is it? phone machine <laughs> yes <laughs> oh, really I'm, good. Having, like I'm having fun with these okay. okay the next one is a bob dylan album about a childish prank gone painfully wrong i did that in my neil hamburger voice by the way this is the toughest one okay read it one more time it's a bob dylan album about a childish prank gone painfully wrong He's got so many albums. He does. Um, can you give me an era? 70s. I don't know if I'm going to get it. It is Blood on the Oh, pack. gosh. I, I had Blood on the... I kept thinking Blood <laughs> on the Whoopee Cushion, which is just weird. <laughs> Be a good album, thing. <laughs> Okay, the last one is a Talking Heads album about elevator ambiance phobia. (laughs) Fear of Muzak. There you go. Oh, those are great. (laughs) That's I like those. It was a lot of a lot of fun to make. I I 
could have done a hundred of them, I think. Um, All right. Okay. Very good. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and do my audio trivia. Um, Today, it's a little different. I'm going to play six songs, and these, these are all songs about famous actors or actresses. And so your job is to tell me the name of the song, or no, your job is to name me the name of the actress or actor that the song is about. You can give me the band and the song title if you want, but I'm really looking for who the song is about. Make sense? Yep. All right, here we go. Track one. I was moved by a screen dream Celluloid pictures of living Track 2 Une nuit que j'étais à me morfondre dans quelques pubs anglais du cœur de Londres. Track 4 Egypt was troubled by the horrible Track five. Track six. Walked into the party like you were walking onto a yacht. Your hat's strategically dipped beneath one eye. Your scarf it was apricot. You had one eye on the mirror. All right, we'll come back and give you answers at the end. Remember, all I'm looking for is, who is that song about? All right, and I think it is time for some turntable talk. Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. From 1917 to 1932, a record label in Grafton, Wisconsin, may have captured more important American recordings than any other label or person before or since. What Paramount Records did was more than almost all of the field researchers like the Lomaxes and Harry Smiths and others combined. And Paramount didn't have to drive all over the country in hopes of finding people who were worth recording and then opening up their trunks and lugging out these giant recording machines which were unwieldy and imperfect. Paramount was created because of the Wisconsin Chair Company of Port Washington, Wisconsin, about 30 miles north of Milwaukee, which manufactured furniture and was a family-owned and operated business. Prior to World War I, they started building phonograph cabinets and then realized that if people were buying phonograph cabinets, they must have phonographs. So they started making those. Then they not quickly enough realized that if people were buying phonographs, they must have records. So they got into the business of making those too. The owners of the Wisconsin Chair opened Paramount Records and its primary recording studio in nearby Grafton, Wisconsin in 1917. 
Then they started searching for talent. They tried looking in the Northeast, focusing on New York City, but the performers there seemed locked into other, bigger labels and contracts. At the time Paramount started, they weren't the only pop-up studios looking to cash in. Other small labels started forming, and they all competed for talent. The major markets seemed to be taken, so they searched the country for untapped markets. One of these other labels, OK Records, stumbled into a hit record by releasing Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues in 1920. New labels now saw what they needed to be successful. Find rural black and white consumers who hadn't yet been marketed to. And it was these listeners who bought a lot of Mamie Smith records, which really began the genre of race records. Here's a clip of that seminal record by Mamie Smith. Because of Smith's hit and the record label's ineptitude, it was assumed that everyone wanted female singers, and so they focused most of their attention on finding the next Mamie Smith. Columbia had Bessie Smith, and Paramount, in 1922, found Alberta Hunter. They certainly didn't stop there, though. Paramount recorded more genres than most others, capturing gospel, hillbilly, jazz, and blues. This buckshot approach landed some big names and helped them find their identity. They hired two critical players in developing the label's roster. First, a talent scout named H.C. Spire to find black talent in the South. And second, a young black entrepreneur in Chicago named Mayo Williams to coordinate in Chicago, which had the largest pop black population in the country. They also opened an additional recording studio in the Windy City. Through Spire and Williams, Paramount amassed a stable of performers that now often appear on postage stamps, artists like Ma Rainey. Blind Lemon Jefferson, Blind Blake, Charlie Patton, Skip James, Jelly Roll Morton, and Sun House. From 1922 to 1932, Paramount produced more than a thousand titles, 20% of the total number of race records during that span. What they ended up capturing was the evolution of the Delta Blues. Mayo Williams was college educated and didn't think he had much in common with blues musicians at all, but in the eyes of white label owners in Wisconsin, he was the same thing. Paramount didn't allow him to have any contact with white performers and was solely in charge of race records. Fortunately for Paramount, Williams was very smart and very good at his job. Williams handled scouting, auditioning, supervising recording sessions, arranging songs, and handling copyrights. Williams, however, was also known for having singers remove any and all obscenities and required singers to use proper pronunciation for words. There's no way to remove any of the debt we owe Williams, but it's also unfortunate that we may have missed out on a few things, too. Singers would get a flat fee of between $20 and $50, and Williams would handle recording everything they had and then send them on their way. A lot of this recording happened in Chicago as well as Grafton. Williams discovered Ma Rainey, and Paramount needed to compete with OK and Columbia, who had Mamie Mamie Smith and Bessie Smith. Paramount billed Ma Rainey as the mother of the blues, Rainey recorded more than a hundred songs for Paramount. One issue that labels selling race records had 
was finding the best ways to get the music to black consumers. Some southern record stores often wouldn't sell race records for fear of having too many black customers. Some would have them, but not display them. They'd keep the records behind the counter and only pull them out when requested. Paramount started using mail orders to attract more customers who may have been uncomfortable with white people's discomfort. Paramount used ads in the Chicago Defender to get the mail order forms to the potential customers. They also used door-to-door salesmen and had furniture stores selling records for them when the record stores wouldn't. In 1925, one of the Southern record store owners in Dallas who was selling Paramount records told them about a blind blue singer who he thought they would like. After some deliberation, Paramount had the singer sent up to Chicago to record. From 1926 until his death in 1929, Blind Lemon Jefferson recorded over a hundred songs for Paramount and became their most important artist yet. These are the words from an actual Paramount brochure. Can anyone imagine a fate more horrible than to find that one is blind? To realize that the beautiful things one hears about, one will never see. Such was the heartrending fate of Lemon Jefferson who was born blind and realized as a small child that life had withheld one glorious joy from him, sight. Then environment began to play its important part in his destiny. He could hear, and he heard the sad-hearted, weary people of his homeland, Dallas, singing weird, sad melodies at their work and play, and unconsciously he began to imitate them, lamenting his fate in song. He learned to play a guitar, and for years he entertained his friends freely, moaning his weird songs as a means of forgetting his affliction. Some friends who saw a great possibility in him suggested that he commercialize his talent, and as a result of following their advice, he is now heard exclusively on Paramount. With copywriting like that, who couldn't want to buy it? Anyways, here's a clip of Blind Lemon Jefferson moaning his allegedly weird song, Black Snake Moan. Well, wonder why the black snake gone. Well, wonder why the black snake gone. Lord, that black snake, mama, don't run my darling home. Jefferson's consistent success changed race records. Labels were all now in search of the next Blind Lemon Jefferson. Mayo Williams found Paramount's next star in another blind singer who was found singing on the streets of Chicago. Blind Blake, originally from Florida, became a label mainstay recording nearly a hundred songs over the next few years. Williams and Paramount had a falling out, and in 1927 Williams left and took control of a small, now legendary Chicago label called Black Patty. After that, Williams worked for Brunswick Records for a few decades. By the late 20s, radio was reducing record sales. Ma Rainey had retired, leaving Jefferson and Blake as the label's stars. Paramount shut down the Chicago recording studio and had all recordings made only in Grafton now. They were using a talent scout and store owner named H.C. Spire. Spire happened on one of the best entertainers of the time. A man known for being an amazing musician, but also a drinker, gambler, womanizer, and general roustabout troublemaker. His name was Charlie Patton. Patton was said to have played the guitar wildly. Over his head, between his legs, he would do whatever it took to get people dancing. In 1929, Paramount had Patton sent to a recording studio in Indiana to get some tracks down so they could hear him. On June 14th, 
Patton cut 14 songs like no one had ever heard before. He played as if he were on stage. The songs were wildly original and wholly powerful. Paramount had found its new star. They advertised in the Chicago Defender that what Patton can't do with a guitar ain't worth mentioning. Here's a clip from that session, and it's called Pony Blues. Got a brand new shilling, made already Blind Lemon Jefferson died in late 1929, and Paramount believed they had now found someone in Patton who could revive their sales and replace Jefferson. Over the next 12 months, he recorded 40 songs for Paramount. Paramount didn't just release Patton's blues sides. When he recorded songs outside of that, they just put a different name on the label. He was known as Elder J.J. Hadley, if the song was religious, and The Masked Marvel, if it was too wild. Due to the Depression, by the early 30s, Paramount, along with many other labels, struggled. They had Patton come to Grafton and record a session that included what ended up being his most well-known song, High Water Blues. One of the artists who accompanied Patton to Grafton that day was part of a four-man group. He was a young player named Sun House. Each of the four took lead on the recordings, and it was at this session that House cut Preaching the Blues. Have a listen. Oh, I'm Paramount, even in the, the declining early 30s, was still finding talent and recording them. They recorded Skip James. They also recorded the Mississippi Sheiks, who might be my all-time favorite blues band. Here's a clip of their Sitting on Top of the World. I go away, I won't stay long, thinking about that sweet thing I've left at home. I never leave her, I don't worry, I'm sitting on top of the world. One thing we haven't touched on yet was the performers' experiences with Paramount itself. They were often traveling hundreds of miles to get to Chicago, and often Wisconsin, usually by train, as most hadn't established themselves in Paramount's eyes yet. The train would take artists as far as Milwaukee. From there, they needed to travel by car or tram for the last 30 miles. The foreman at the plant, Alfred Schultz, would often handle transportation between Grafton and Milwaukee. Can you even imagine having your whole life spent in the South 
and then being sent to Wisconsin in the dead of winter and having any idea what was going on, it would be horrible. They, also, in addition to that, they couldn't even stay overnight in Grafton. It was an all-white city. So they'd be taken to a boarding house in Brewers Hill in Milwaukee. So after recording all day, they would then have to leave, go down 30 miles, spend the night somewhere, then come back up in the morning. It was pretty despicable. There are no pictures of the inside of the recording studio in Grafton, but the outside looked like a barn. From descriptions made by singers, the building itself was split into two rooms, a control room and a recording space. Burlap covered the walls and windows, and thick carpet on the floors helped to cut down reverberation. There was one piano in there, a baby grand piano, and that was it. The whole place was cold and damp and an awful spot for recording music. But again, it wasn't designed to capture rich history with painstaking love and care. It was made to sell furniture and records and make money. Booze, illegal at the time, was used to prime their pumps, as it were, a la the Jerry Springer show. Singers got paid for recording, but never any royalties. A one-time payment when they got there. They'd record every afternoon until they were finished and then sent back down south and forgotten about. Not an incredibly glamorous experience, but it was a little money at least. Paramount made up song titles. They misspelled names if they didn't just make them up. It never mattered to them at all. They just wanted to sell stuff. In 1932, after releasing a limited amount of patent records, Paramount shut down. The equipment went to rust. The master discs were melted down for copper or even used to build chicken coops. Even the ledgers used to track the artists, songs, and dates were destroyed. These are not people who were ever interested in the music, just the money. What happened to the masters had no interest to them. When some of these people were located decades later, they seemed dumbstruck that anyone would even care about these songs and what happened to them. In Grafton today, once a year, they celebrate Paramount Records' contribution to music, but it all seems more like a marketing ploy to get tourists and not a heart. Uh, heartfelt celebration. The town needs an identity, and this is what they can use, which is far more than most cities can lay claim to. Maybe we're just a little bit jaded because the people who lived there and worked there at the time had no appreciation. I'm not even talking about the music now. The, the artists weren't allowed to sleep overnight in the same city. When Williams came up from Chicago to attend executive meetings, he had to take a freight elevator. Times were different, but cultural context doesn't answer everything. Humans were taken advantage of and treated like less than they were. Thankfully, it is the memory of those same humans that is now cherished. What they brought to the world, despite the way it treated them, will never be forgotten. The story of Paramount Records does not end there. In 2013, Third Man Records, in concert with Revenant Records, released the first of what ended up becoming the two most beautiful box sets ever made in tribute to the music made at Paramount in Wisconsin. The sets comprise 1,600 songs, and not a single one of them is bad. Each offers more than most performers ever even knew was an option. And the sets, again, they're just stunning. They come in suitcases. They're, um, you should go on Third Man Records. We'll put a link up there. They're beautiful. Beautifully expensive, though. <laughs> pretty, pretty horribly expensive. That is the story of Paramount Records. Uh, just the kind of nuts and bolts of how... Someone in Wisconsin captured some of the most important music ever made in Wisconsin, and it wasn't polka. It's so sad, and it's so interesting. This kind of, as we do this more and more, we see that, you know, there's so much money mixed in with music, and it just, they just never seem to go well together. It's just, they're kind of, but 
I guess all that to say is like, you know, sometimes these painful circumstances, these horrible money grubbing things make some of the most amazing and beautiful music. And even though it's a darn shame we lost so much of it to chicken coops um, or copper, I mean, at least at least some of it was preserved and recorded. You were telling me a story about uh, Lomax, like how he was kind of, a, he helped preserve a lot of them. Well, one thing that um, that I found while I was doing the research on this was John Lomax one time went into a one of a store somewhere down south, and he found a bunch of old Paramount records. And at the time, he didn't even really know what Paramount records was. He took the records and started playing them, and he he loved them. And then he took them back to New York and cataloged those records. There's only like thirty of them, better than anyone at Paramount cataloged any of those records. He did a better job of preserving what they were creating. Uh, and then he searched and searched and searched and searched for more of them. So thanks to him, we have some of the information, at least, um, more than we had from Paramount. Some amazing music. <laughs> All right. Well, let's play some songs. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and tackle the first track here. This song is called uh, Midnight Sun. It's by an artist named Henry Pedro. Shine your light 
Henry Pedro with Midnight Sun. Uh, this is a song that is a Nigerian country music song. Henry Pedro and many other Nigerians in the late 70s and early 80s took a real shine to uh, American country music. And so they uh, kind of made it their own. And so this song, Midnight Sun, comes off uh, Henry Pedro's Tender Loving EP, which was released in 1983, if you believe it or not on a Nigerian um, subsidiary of EMI called EMI-HMV. It's a lot of letters. Um, anyways, it sounds like a sweet Simon and Garfunkel track that was recorded two decades too late in a country half a world away, and that's totally amazing. We found it on a compilation called like Nashville in Naija, which uh, is an all-Nigerian country music compilation that was released as a Record Store Day thing in 2017. Coleman Razor um, Records released it, and Coleman Razor is something I ran across probably 10 years prior. He's basically a blogger who's now turned his music into a record label that specializes in African music, and uh, I'd heard an amazing mix that I think he shared on Aquarium Drunkard probably gosh, a decade ago, maybe even more, and I remembered some of these songs, so I was super excited to find that some of this had gotten released on vinyl. Uh, the whole uh, compilation is fantastic. I wouldn't be surprised if I play more from it at some point in the future, uh, but this song's probably my favorite. It's great. It's very Congopolitan. <laughs> it is. It is. Sorry, I've been saving, I've been saving that for a couple minutes now. <laughs> All right. My first song is by a band called Green on Red, and the song is called That's What Dreams Are Made Of.
That was Green on Red with That's What Dreams Are Made Of from their third studio album called Gas Food Lodging, released in 1985 on Enigma Records. Green on Red is known for being part of the Paisley Underground, which was a group of mostly L.A. bands that had somewhat like-minded styles and were often influenced by many of the same bands like Love and the Birds, Big Star, Velvet Underground, that kind of stuff. Other well-known bands from that subgenre include Dream Syndicate, The Bangles, and Opal. Opal, as a side note, kind of had some changes to their lineup slightly and added a woman named Hope Sandoval and became Massey Star, which is kind of cool. <laughs> Green on Red, though, was a little bit different because they hailed from Tucson, and they didn't move to L.A. until after they'd sort of established themselves. They were a pretty tight band by that point already. To the Paisley Underground scene, which they fit in with really well, they added a bit of desert twang. To me, they're the link between the Sir Douglas Quintet and Calexico. Okay, my next song is very different from those last two. This is Jody Gales with You Gotta Push. Jody Gales with a song called You Gotta Push on Thomas Records. 
recorded in 1971 on a 45 only. It's just a kind of a fairly rare Northern Soul dance track, and it's just a great song to sweat off booze to at the end of the night. It's really, really good. There's not a whole lot of information on Jody Gales. If anybody out there has any, I'd love to find out more about her. Uh, I just don't know a whole lot, and I would like to learn more. That that song is great. I love it. I love playing it. Uh, when I used to play in, in Chicago bars, I would play it at the end of the night, and it it really always did well. But they were all drunk, so. <laughs> Easy picking. All right. Uh, I've got our last song. This is a song by a band called The Dirt Bombs. It's called Do You See My Love For You Growing?
Alright, the Dirt Bombs were a killer Detroit garage band that blended soul and punk and funk and R&B and Motown sounds and in kind of a garage rock package with, uh, they had two bass players, two drummers, and uh, awesome fuzzy guitar lead. The main guy is named Mick Collins, and he was formerly of the Gories, which were a Detroit garage band, kind of legendary garage band. This uh, song is from their second album, Ultra Glide in Black, uh, which was released in 2001 on In the Red Records. And it's basically a garage rock ode to the African-American funk and soul artists that Collins grew up listening to. So all the songs are basically revved up covers. I think there's one original, maybe. But this just makes it a really fun, danceable party album. The record got some notoriety as the garage rock, especially Motor City garage rock came into fashion in the early aughts. And so the Dirt Bombs opened for the White Stripes, and Jack White has publicly talked about his admiration for Collins and how he's influenced by the Gories. So um, this track, uh, it's the last track on the album. It's a cover of Junior Walker and the All-Stars. The song, again, is named Do You See My Love For You Growing? And it's just got that, that fantastic drum beat intro and goes into the bass line and just just a fun fun song i think that's about it except we gotta settle up on some trivia so i'm gonna go ahead and play the songs uh for you one more time or the clips of songs for you one more time again we're looking for the actor or actress who the song is about track one Une nuit que j'étais à me morfondre dans quelques pubs anglais du cœur de Londres. Track 4 Egypt was troubled by the horrible Track five. Track six. were walking onto a yacht. Your hat's beneath one eye. Your scarf it was You had one eye on the all right, Joe, what you got for me? Okay, I think I know the bands, at least most of them. Okay. And not all the songs and not many of the people they're about, but I'll, I'll give it my best. The first song is Roxy Music, and I just don't remember the name of the song itself. Okay. I think it might be that 2HB. It is 2HB. Who's HB? Is looking at you, kid. Hugh Beffner. Uh, it is. Oh, Humphrey Bogart. 
Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, thank sure. you for the Great. hint. That helped. Yeah, everybody out there got to sing a everybody little. Everybody out there got that. Yeah, got to got to. We all got to hear the spread my Brian fairy wings. The, the sweet velvety crooning. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's move on quickly. Okay. Um, second song. Second song. Second song is Susie and the Banshees with "Kiss Them for Me." Yes. Um, I have no idea who that's about. It's about Jane Mansfield. It's about her car crash. Oh wow! Okay. Um, that's why uh, she might be too late. Wow. Jeez. Okay. Yeah. That's uh, Mariska Hargitay's mom. She was in the back of the car, by the way. Uh, of SVU fame. <laughs> I wonder if she ever plays that song. Uh, no. Probably not. No. Probably Maybe. Not. So I got something to talk to Ice T about. Um. <laughs> could you could All you right, sample this song. about my mom? <laughs> but the next song is definitely Serge Gainsbourg, but I have no idea what this song is. My um, and just as a guess as to who it would be about, it's either about his daughter, <laughs> Jane Birkin, or Bridget Bardot. <laughs> so, okay, if I tell you the name of the song is initials BB. Oh, uh, okay, Bew Bethner, uh, Bridget Bardot. <laughs> Bridget Bardot. Sorry, I don't know why I'm stuck on Bew Hefner. I don't know either. Okay, we'll just ride it till it dies. All right, uh, fourth song, easy one. Uh, it is REM with Man on the Moon, and that is about Andy Kaufman. It is. Ooh. It is. All right. Next one. White Stripes. Oh, thank oh. you. I did know that. It is the White yes, Stripes. I would hope so. But I have no idea what the song title is. I don't remember their song titles very well. This is from one of their later albums. It's called Take, Take, Take. And it's about... Renee Zellweger? No. No. Come on now. It might be. <laughs> but he mentions uh, Rita Hayworth in the song. I think it's about trying to get her autograph in an airport or something. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've actually listened intently i mean i i remember he had a song about rita hayworth and that's all i remembered so anyways okay okay i will just take your word for it i'm not even gonna look it up don't fact check me the last song is you're so vain which is a carly simon song and this one is by this version is by the mountain goats and i think that's correct the song is about mick jagger um no well nobody supposed to know who the song is about but it's about mick jagger no, he it's sings, about Warren Beatty. Mick Jagger sings backup on it, and because he's not so bright, he doesn't even know it's about him while she's singing it. I don't... He's not an actor, so it wouldn't fit with my quiz. He's not an actor? Are you kidding me? What? <laughs> Are you kidding me? I mean, he, Have you he's, not he's seen been in Ned that... Kelly? <laughs> Free Jack? <laughs> Actually, he's really good in performance. Have you ever seen performance? I have not, but he is. he's a decent actor. I don't think he wears uh, apricot scarves. Is that what he is? Flying up to Nova Scotia to see a total eclipse of the sun? I don't remember. Uh, I think that's a Bonnie Tyler song. (laughs) (laughs) All right, whatever. uh, I'll give you half a point for that. All right. Well, you said Warren Beatty, huh? Okay. That's that's who I've always heard the songs about. Could be. So, tomato, tomato. Tomato, Warren Beatty. Jagger, Beatty. Ned Beatty, Warren Beatty. (laughs) all right let's move on i think we've destroyed that quiz as much as i liked it i liked it all right yeah it's kind of fun uh pretty good songs i think you can yeah you know as they go all right well that does it for our show thank you if you've uh uh, hung on this long as always please go out and uh, support record stores and record labels and artists and just people who bring us good music it's you know, we like to share these songs, but we don't want to take any money out of the pockets of people who make a living off this stuff. It's all about 
uh, hopefully getting the message out so you will go out and support them and spend money in um, in a positive way, helping those people out. And, and find us on Facebook. You can just search Highway Hi-Fi Podcast. We'll be there. Uh, we do a lot of posting on Facebook, and we've got a lot of new people subscribing to that, so thank you to those people. Uh, we can also be found on Twitter. We post a lot on there, too, and... Our handle there is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. Um, you can also email us, Highway Hi-Fi Podcast at gmail.com, and just send us anything anything you want. Send us some uh, requests for things you'd like us to do some research on, songs you kind of want to hear that you don't think other people know enough about. And also, please, if you have a chance, I don't know why this is so important, but if you could uh, write a review and give us a rating on iTunes... We would be your friend for a long time unless you don't like us, and then we won't be your friend. But whatever you want, we'll do, I guess, basically. <laughs> I think we've effectively uh, wasted another fine hour, whatever they say on the uh, car talk once. All right, let's just go ahead and end it. All right, we appreciate everybody who's listened, and um, yeah, we will see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.